0: you heard some of the great insights from guests on gangery the podcast insights like I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I always ask myself with yeah, stories, and, and I remember had the going question. through Nabokov's archives. It has a question mark in my Imagine head I'm on your time. shoulder and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here GoPro. is uh, carefully and Every single puzzle about the whole Bundy story was just so interesting. It's a really weird one to write, because every time I try to have one... This became a viral sensation, right? Like, it was the story. You, you cannot,
1: you cannot do these stories. or how we uh, how we understand the world. They're we share our experiences
0: believe it or not gangry the podcast is now in its ninth year in all that time the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories you can still listen to every single episode they're on our website along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about you can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com that's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Mark S. Johnson. Johnson is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter who covers health and science for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. This episode is a little different from previous shows. Johnson and I do talk a bit about his health and science reporting, but more so, we talked about his first novel, Though the Earth Gives Way. It was published in January by Bancroft Press. The book is an end of days look at a small group of people as climate change has wrecked the planet.
1: Everyone talks about how polarized our society is. And I mean, we have factions that would practically go to war over issues like the 2020 election, or even stuff that's in the grand scheme of things, not so huge. If we're polarized over elections, think how it would be if the, li- the world as we know it, the life that we've uh, enjoyed, we all come to realize we can't give that life to our children.
0: One thing I'm interested in, and this is why I wanted Mark to come on the show, is how the journalism that he's done in his career helped or hindered his ability to write fiction. One thing he did to help improve his dialogue writing was go to the mall and listen to people talk. Beyond that, he used Google to learn whatever he needed to learn.
1: I think one of the the experiences about writing in general is um, it calls attention to the vast amount that you don't know. Anytime you start to write something, you realize all of the subjects that you don't know about. That, that's kind of, in some ways, one of the most valuable things about it and one of the most satisfying things. It's the it's a license to learn. Johnson was part
0: of the Pulitzer Prize winning team in 2011 for a series on the groundbreaking use of genetic technology to save a four year old boy's life. That series was later turned into a book, One in a Billion. He co-wrote that book with Kathleen Gallagher. Johnson has also been a Pulitzer finalist three times. As usual, I've linked to a lot of Johnson's work on the website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Mark, welcome to Gangry the Podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Appreciate it.
0: Mark, It's uh, this is a very special episode in a lot of ways because... Um, uh, I've never had an episode in which the main focus uh, of the show is, uh, is a, is a work of fiction. Um, I, I did have a short story writer on a long, long time ago when I was doing segments and that, that, <laughs> the segment idea lasted about three episodes and I couldn't, it was too <laughs> much work. Um, but I, I you know, we, we're going to talk about your, your book, uh, though the earth gives way, which was published by Bancroft press, um, back in January. Um, and, uh, I, I'm looking forward to talking with you about this book, but also about how journalism and the work that you have done has helped contribute to what you were able to do as a novelist. So, um, before we get, before we get into all that though, I I would love for you to, to tell me
1: about the novel itself. Uh, Sure. Um, actually it's, uh, It's based on a a very kind of old idea. Um, When I was in high school, uh, I had this very ambitious uh, European lit teacher who had us read Dante's Inferno and Boccaccio's Decameron. Decameron served as kind of the structural model for the the novel. Um, The idea, it's one of the earliest, considered one of the earliest novels ever written. And um, it takes place during the great plague. Um, these noble men and noble women flee into um, the hills uh, outside Florence and hole up in this villa. And to pass the time, they tell each other's stories. And I, I remember liking it um, when I read it in high school, I was probably much too young. Um, but about five or 10 years ago, it had occurred to me that what if you had the same situation, only it was a a climate change apocalypse that people were fleeing? And I got very interested in the idea of storytelling as one of those um, basic fundamental things like food, water, air. Um, It's one of those things that keeps us going. And I thought it would be really interesting to sort of Give it a try. Um, I I, uh, I have to say, I didn't, a lot of my, I get a lot of ideas and most of them I um, don't follow through on. Um, this one, for a variety of reasons, I did. Um, I was basically, I was having a, a rough year in my journalism um, work and I was kind of afraid that I was, starting to hate writing i was uh, i was working on one story that i had to revise constantly it was an investigative piece on um uh, research misconduct and it was one of these ones that went back and forth between an editor and a lawyer and never saw the light of day it uh, i collected a whole bunch of um threat letters and stuff um And it was a really grueling experience. Um, And I started doing the, uh, the novel writing at night uh, in bed. Um, Just time that I normally would have spent uh, reading. I sort of cut my reading time in half and started, I figured I'd give it a a crack and see what happened.
0: I was, um, I was curious, uh, like when you originally thought of this, this storyline, um, and did you say that in high school you had this idea?
1: Um, no, I, I, I read the Decameron the, the in high school, but it was about maybe, I don't know, five or seven years ago, something like that. It was, before, it was a couple of years before I actually started writing it that it had occurred to me. Um, I think covering science, and I'm sure that other science writers have had this experience, Um, after a while it occurred to me that uh, although I like a lot of the stories I write I mean I enjoy working on them I felt like um, they were all relatively trivial in compared to the one huge story that's in front of us and I wondered I, I think I started to think about it a lot and how I've I've done stories here and there on it, but um, I wanted to feel like I uh, involved myself directly in it in some way. It's it, it's one of those stories that's so um, uh, frightening and um, depressing, frankly, that it's easy to kind of check out on
0: the, the book is set in the year 2028. I think that's, mm-hmm. am I correct on that? Um, that's correct. and involves, uh, complete strangers kind of all coming together as, as they've, they've fleed, um, or fled the, um, uh, the repercussions A series of hurricanes. Yes. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I liked that idea too. The, the, um, the sense of, uh, strangers, coming together and one of the the things that had occurred to me when I thought about uh, uh, when I started to really think seriously about the novel was that um, everyone talks about how polarized our society is and I mean we have uh, factions that would practically go to war over you know issues like the 2020 election or even you know stuff that's in the grand scheme of things, not so huge. And I thought, what if, you know, at stake was whether one side uh, basically allowed the destruction of the world? You know, uh, we, we are very good at blaming each other for disasters, but this is the ultimate one. And if we're uh, uh, polarized over elections, Think how it would be if uh, the li- the world as we know it, the life that we've uh, enjoyed, we all come to realize we can't give that life to our children. And half of the people feel um, probably more than half that that you know I trusted the scientists, I voted for the right people, et cetera, et cetera. And half of the other people. Um, maybe less than half felt the opposite. Um, first of all, if, if it if it came to pass, I mean the anger um, that would be brewing would just be uh, would make the the January 11th or January 6th the insurrection look you know, like a playground. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that uh, so much is at stake with it. And I think that, that for people who kind of have felt that the important thing to do is to keep relitigating and, re- and debating it over and over again, I think when the disasters start to occur, there's going to be a sense of guilt. Um, you know, even I think for some of the most hardcore climate deniers, if you have children, you know, how can you think, you know on your deathbed that that you've given to them the opportunities that you had um if you've actually given them a much worse life
0: do you you remember um when this idea for for this uh novel the, this piece of fiction do you remember when that idea first popped into your head
1: um yeah i think i think it as in terms of actually going ahead and doing it, I think the um, the will to do it I think happened in the middle of um, uh, that year that I was working on this uh, this story I think it was the year 2018 and um, I thought you know I've got like a, a lot of reporters I have a laptop full of short stories that I've started and stopped. I have tons of dreadful poetry, bad, bad poetry um, that I wouldn't show to anybody else because it's bad. Um, And I thought, you know, uh, it wouldn't, as far as a novel, I've never really tested myself on it. And, you know, um, it would be interesting to see what happened if I actually pushed it to completion. So I think I think it was around um, the summer or fall of 2018. It was beginning to hit me that this story I'd been working on all year was um, was not going to end well. Um, my wife had actually urged me to ditch it. Um, she saw that it was becoming obsessive, um, and that I was kind of trapped in a situation where it was going to grind me down. Um, and so I I I think in some ways the novel um around about the fall of 2018, it occurred to me as not just a uh, a project to work on, but a form of self-help, you know, almost of therapy. Um and I remember the first uh night that usually I like to read for, you know, maybe an hour and a half in bed. And I said, what if I cut that time to like 45 minutes and spend 45 minutes writing? And it was amazing how easily the, uh, the writing came first. It wasn't, it wasn't hard. Some of it, the hard thing I think was trusting myself to tell a story I don't know to be true. I mean uh, that I found difficult, um, and in fact, very early on, a lot of the stories that are told between the characters are actually modeled very closely on stories that I've actually written, and a lot of that had to do with that that fact that I had this weird feeling um, when. I imagine it must be similar when um, somebody uh, who's been in fiction all their lives goes to write nonfiction, you know, can I trust myself to do this the right way, you know, without cutting corners. And um, you think as a journalist, I have all this experience, you know, 30 years of seeing, you know, quote unquote real life. Um, And I still thought that what I I needed was the basis in fact, um, of some of my old stories. I went through 30 years of clips and I looked at them kind of to get a sense of, um, to remind myself the way the world is, you know? (laughs) Um, And then uh, there were ones that occurred to me as, um, that touched on kind of uh, themes that, That I was very drawn to. So there were ones that I picked out, especially for the novel to um, fictionalize.
0: This brings up something that I've been uh, really fascinated with, with within about the last year or so, ever since I read Paul Auster's biography of Stephen Crane, who... Um, sadly, as an as English department professor, I did not realize that Stephen Crane was a journalist primarily, far more than, than, a, than a fiction writer uh, in, in his uh, short life of writing. Um, but I've become fascinated with um, novelists who have been journalists, right? And what impact that journalism work has on their
1: ability to write fiction. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, some things come very easy out of, uh, easily out of it, um, and part of it has to do with the way that my um, journalism career went. I decided fairly early on that what I really wanted to be was a a good feature writer. I wanted to write narratives, and when I made the decision, it was mainly because I liked to read them. It wasn't because I was good at it, and. I, it took a long time to um, to figure out how to translate the type of stuff that I was reading. I mean, I at least knew what good was. I just didn't know how to get there. Um, and I, I think when it was definitely a turning point when I finally sort of started to be able to find in a really good news story the parts that that make it come out one of the things that you you realize when you make the switch and and try to write fiction i think um i don't know if other journalists have found this but um i found that that dialogue came easily to me it came very naturally um and it's funny because i'd actually in preparing to write the novel um I did one of these uh, these sort of old tricks. Um, now it's gonna slip my uh, memory who did it. Um, I went to the mall and listened. Just listen, I spent some time, uh, you know, an hour here, an hour there, just listening to people talk. Again, because I wasn't, there was a part of me that was really, really insecure about all of this. You know, I don't know what I'm doing kind of thing. Um, but I realized, you know, after doing that maybe once or twice, that I actually really, I've talked to enough people that I kind of do know how people talk. Um, there were other things like action and um, character development. Character development, I think, was a lot harder. Because um, you can pull off a, um, a newspaper narrative uh, that has enough action, um, without having really deep character development i think it's it inevitably it's not going to be as strong a piece but um it's not terribly difficult to do i mean there's some things that shootings you know unfortunately are we're drawn to that kind of action anything that's sort of life and death um but uh, one of the early, it's funny because one of the early lessons that I'd learned in, um, in reporting uh, actually came back to me in um, writing fiction. And that was um, when I was at, just before I got to the Providence Journal, uh, I sent a reporter there. I used to do this all the time. Um, a guy named Gene Wayne Miller had won the ASNE Writing Award for non deadline work. And I sent him a letter asking uh, him for a copy of the story. This was before the internet, so I couldn't just look it up. And I was out in Rockford, Illinois, with no access to the Providence Journal. Um, he very kindly sent me a copy of his series and asked me to send him something I'd written. Um, it was the, He was the first person that actually ever did that. And I'd, I'd sent away to dozens and dozens of people. But it was the start of a sort of a relationship back and forth talking about writing, because basically I wanted what he had. I wanted to be able to do what he was able to do. And um, I started showing him drafts of things, um, especially once I got to Providence and vividly, I remember um, showing him this a story that was about uh a guy who was a used car salesman, who was shot in a completely, you know, random, bizarre um, incident. He happened to be at a bar that he used to go to um, after work for an hour or two. And on one particular night, he was sitting in the seat that the bar's owner usually sat in. And the bar's owner earlier had had a conflict with I think it was two or three young men and they came back and fired shots through the window. One of them paralyzed this guy. Anyway so I thought just the sheer happenstance of it is going to carry the story. I thought you know I've got this great lead and everything and um, Wayne read the lead and he said you know um, before you know your main character gets shot, you have to make people care about him. And I mean, that seems such an obvious thing, but at the time, to me, it it wasn't. I hadn't, I thought I had done it or that it was implicit, that just as as human beings, you know, we're going to care about what happens to other human beings. But it, it didn't, it wasn't something that that needed a lot of work. I think I put in that he was a father for a used car salesman I put in just a few um, drops of, of of kind of personal um, character that helped so that when you know when he did get shot you know there was some um, empathy for him yeah. I think that's such an important thing in, in uh, both in fiction and nonfiction and I was very thankful, um, that that was is one of the main lessons that uh has sort of stuck with me in my writing life um uh, Wayne was right on the button on that
0: Yeah, definitely, for sure. Um you you mentioned uh in terms of like trying to nail dialogue, going to the mall and just listening uh to to people talk. Uh do you did you do any other type of research uh that you would have done typically as a journalist, but you did it in order to um uh, pull off some various, uh, uh,
1: things that happened in the book in the in the novel. This is really interesting. Not, not the kind of research that you'd think. Um, I, I didn't do a lot on, um, climate change. I'd read a fair amount about it. So I had like a, you know, a fair working knowledge, but al- along the way, there were a lot of details like, um, What sort of plants would grow in this part of Michigan? What uh, fruits or vegetables could be found? You know, how do they grow? Um, What kinds of things might somebody surviving need to be able to do? There were a lot of sort of little detail things like that that uh, came up. And sometimes they would come up as you're writing a sentence, you know? I was writing a sentence about, uh, you know, one of the main character going on a walk to uh, to uh, in search of food, and you know, going past this um, body of water that's sort of grown just in the time that he's been at this retreat center, and he passes a certain uh, kind of wildflower, and I realized, you know, I don't know anything about wildflowers. But of course, this is one of the wonderful things about the internet is you can put in wildflowers and Michigan, and you can get lists and and wonderful uh, information that you can then sort of verify. And um, it it goes through it, it um, it's a tool that's beyond what you sort of expect. Um, this wasn't for the the book, but I, I I think during the time that I was working on the book, I also, um, just as a diversion, I tried some short stories. One of them was I wanted to see if I could write something humorous. I wrote this uh, story. I don't know if it succeeded or not. Um, it's still unpublished, but it's called The Pant Thief of Prague. And I've never been to Prague, I don't know anything about it. So I looked up, and I don't know anything about fashion, but I looked up expensive pants. I looked up Prague street maps, you know, what things look like and without, you know, it would have been obviously better if I'd been to Prague, Um, but there's an amazing amount that you can garner just by, um, you know, following your curiosity. Um, I mean, I think that sometimes we take for granted the, the fact that we can just go into Google and ask a question and get an answer. I mean, that, that's something that you you do with your parents when you're growing up. But as a parent myself, I know that a lot of time, a lot of times you tell your kid, ooh, I don't know about that, or you wing it and you try and pretend you know more than you know. Um, it's, ha- having the internet is, is um, great as far as like a lot of the detail things on a novel. So I ended up doing um, I didn't always know ahead of time the research that I would be doing. Um, as I was writing something, I'd realize, oh, you know, I need to know something about this. Like, you know, I wanted them to find potatoes. How do potatoes grow? Yeah. You know, I know remarkably little about potatoes, except I like eating them, you know? <laughs> and it was it was similar things like that, you know? Um, it's... I think one of the, the experiences about writing in general is um, it calls attention to the vast amount that you don't know. Anytime you start to write something, you realize all of the subjects that you don't know about. That, that's kind of, in some ways, one of the most valuable things about it and one of the most satisfying things. It's, the, it's a license to learn.
0: We're going to take a short break. In one minute, I'll be back with more from Mark Johnson. He's the author of the novel Though the Earth Gives Way. This is Gangry the Podcast.
1: Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the digital journalism and sports media programs at Fairfield University. Digital journalism is designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to succeed in today's quickly changing media world. Students take courses in everything from big data storytelling to podcasting to narrative journalism and more. Sports media is a new major that prepares students to work anywhere sports-related content is produced. Students take journalism and broadcast courses taught by professionals in the industry, including those from ESPN and the WWE. They can also take courses in public relations, film, and more. To learn more about the digital journalism and sports media programs, visit www.airfield.edu.
0: Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm talking with Mark Johnson. Johnson is a Pulitzer Prize-winning health and science reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. He's also written his first novel though the earth gives way. Um, I want to I switch gears here a little bit. Um, you, uh, this is not your first book. Uh, you co-wrote One in a Billion, which was, I think, based on the series of articles that you wrote, uh, that won the Pulitzer Prize in 2011?
1: That's correct. Can
0: you can you tell me about that series and then that book? And then I'm also curious, like, um, how different it was to write fiction than it was to write a book book of nonfiction, uh, of reported significantly reported nonfiction.
1: Sure. Um, that experience was, was different in a lot of ways. One of the ways was first of all, that there were two writers. I worked with uh, a colleague, Kathleen Gallagher. She was actually, she's a, um, uh, business reporter. She's since, um, left the business, but, uh, it was actually her, um, tip that led to this. Um, She was a naturally sort of gabby kind of person. She was very good at smoothing smoothing, uh, with sources. Smoothing with with sources. And um, uh, it was during one of these sessions, like after she'd gotten all that she needed for a story from a source, she was just asking them, you know, throwing out questions. And she found out about this um, case involving this child whose all of his genes had been sequenced. And after she found it out, um, I'll never forget this. I mean this she get off, she got off the phone and came running to my desk and said, "There's this kid who was at the medical college of Wisconsin who they sequenced all of all of his genes. Has that ever been done before?" And at that point, I was I think I was in my first or second year as a science reporter, and I'd mainly been writing about stem cells. I didn't know. I knew <laughs> remarkably little about DNA. Um, but I did some uh, some research and very quickly, I think within a week or two, we were able to establish that this was something that had not occurred before. And I think w- w- one of the first really good signs was that when we called to try to set up interviews with the key doctors, um, media relations didn't know about the story. They had no idea what we were talking about. And I remember thinking, you know, that was such a great um, feeling because um, it was too, it it was, first of all, we were getting there in the middle of the story, it wasn't over yet. So a lot of times what happens with, um, especially with medical stories is that, media relations contacts reporters only after things have turned out well so you hear about the success stories you don't tend to hear about um the failures my um, one there's one exception that i can remember i i wrote a story on a guy who was waiting for a, a organ transplant and actually died while waiting and it was not the i was completely unprepared to write it you know um but with this one, uh, we there were sort of two aspects of it. One was um, was getting the science down, and uh, we actually ended up uh, the science reporter before me had this huge textbook um, that was written on. Um, I think it was called the the DNA Age. It's like a five hundred page textbook, and I, it's it was written. Um, at least partially, if not completely, by James Watson. And I read it cover to cover. It was, it was actually kind of fun to read. I mean, whatever um, for, uh, faults Watson has, he's a very colorful guy. And he, um, probably to his detriment, he says what he thinks all the time. So we both um, read that uh read that textbook and a number of um other stories that had to do with dna sequencing the other thing we realized almost immediately um as soon as um we had told editors what we were on to was that unless we got the family's cooperation we would we had nothing you know we would have a very dry story about something very important. And um, we were extraordinarily lucky. Um, the family um, was very open to us, uh, uh, almost amazingly so. Um, one of the first things that um, Nick's mom did was she uh, gave us permission to sign on to um, the bridge uh, page that she'd had for Nick. This was like a gold mine. It was actually, I think 600 pages long by the time we got it. He'd been in the hospital for like two and a half years. So, and this, she had documented it day by day and even moment by moment. Sometimes there were like three entries on a single day. And so it allowed us to do a couple of things. One was that it was, it was this amazing chronology. We had the dates for everything we needed. Um, the other thing was immediacy. Um, people tend to remember things differently, you know, the further out they get from an event, We had this, just this, like I said, it was a gold mine. Um, and especially because, um, the mom, Mrs. Folker, she, uh, she never held back on things. Um, I mean, she said exactly what she felt, uh while she was going through something that was extraordinarily difficult.
0: I will say, I do want to jump in and say that um, the whole idea of memory is so um, is something I came across when I wrote my memoir because I got my medical records as a, from a, as a 15 year old uh, leukemia patient and not like my memories were completely jumbled. Uh, and those medical records laid out the timeline of exactly when everything happened. and, And for, for, as a reporter, that's a, again, another goldmine, right. To be able to look and see exactly what every nurse wrote every hour of every day. Um, uh, that really changed the way I think about uh, when I'm interviewing other people about what, what did you remember? Especially if we're talking five years or even five weeks, a lot of times.
1: Right. It's, it's interesting you bring that up because I, I remember there being a debate about that. Um, when Angela's Ashes, Frank McCord's memoir came out um, because it, it is so exact in dialogue and it's so colorful. And I think a lot of people who read it would have thought to themselves, I can't remember, I wouldn't have remembered nearly as much about my childhood. Um, and I remember there were, there were sort of two things about it. Um, One was that he had been telling the stories that that made up Angela's ashes in bars in New York for years. And so a lot of it was, I mean, was like original oral storytelling. Um, But I think there was also uh, a sense in which he allowed himself uh, to sort of trust his memory as absolute. Um, there are some things, you know, in a memoir, I'm sure you probably ran into this, where um, you, what you're left with is much more s- strongly the feeling of something than the exact sequence of how it happened, you know? And and what's, what's fascinating to me, um, I, I totally agree with you about memory, is the way that we... Um, restructure stories um, and it's not necessarily something we do to you know because we were liars or something I think it's because it's a it's a means of control we like to we like to be able to frame the narrative especially of our own lives I mean if you can't do that you, you feel sort of powerless right you know and so this was I think this was something we definitely dealt with that in the, um, um, the stories about Mick Volker. It took, we followed the family, I think for about 10 months. And um, as, first of all, it was a tremendous luxury. I'd worked, you know, years and years without having put in that much time on one story. And um, I, we realized we were extraordinarily blessed. I mean, I remember later telling Kathleen that the moment that she ran up and told me about this, it was like somebody handed me a winning lottery ticket. You know, do you want, you want in on this? And it was like, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Completely. You know um, but there was also a tremendous um, uh, burden that went with it that um, there's an incredible responsibility to get it right. Um, you know, from the beginning, and I, I try to tell myself this with other stories as well, that this is something I'm only gonna have one shot at. You know, once it's in the paper, it's done. I can have all the time in the world to see the flaws in it. And That's it's not going to do me any good, but it's it's part of the process. You know, writers inevitably do that, and so you've got. In some ways, it's almost like you're fighting, you're playing defense. You're trying to polish away, almost like um, sand away, as many of the flaws as you can. You know, Um, one of the things that I think was most valuable. Um, in that particular story, it was a three-part series. And I don't know, I'm guessing, but probably about 12,000 words somewhere in that neighborhood. And the last 10 days before it published, Kathleen and I read it back and forth to each other at least once every day. We read the entire thing from start to finish. And it was uh, just an amazing way to pick up all the the awkward, uh, you know, syntax, um, it was also a way to, you know, to question all the facts that were in it. Um, you know, we would come across something and, and, you know, when you've been working on something for a lot of months, you say, you know, that's been in every draft, but where do we get that? You know, where did that come from? And you have to go back and I'm, I'm still old fashioned. I, I, all my notes are in notebooks, you know, um, I, I've never gotten real comfortable taking notes at um, at the laptop, um, but it was it was an exceptionally good pro, um, process, and I felt that every sentence that we'd been able to read to each other without sort of stumbling, um, we had gotten it at least to a point where we'd um, we'd smoothed out the rough edges. It was as reader friendly as we could make it. You know?
0: I, it's it's funny because uh, you're describing the reporting process, which is incredibly, um, and it should be uh, um, disciplined, but also um, stressful. I think. Yes. Right? yeah, It was, and then the and then the writing itself is all based on that reporting, which makes it seem <laughs> incredibly stressful. Uh, And then fiction, you're sitting down to write in your bed at night. It's nice and (laughs) nice and calming. But yet when I think about writing fiction, that stresses me
1: out more than than doing anything else. Yeah. You know, it's, it was interesting. I didn't think anything could be as stressful as the feeling that I used to get. And I still get it actually the day before an important story runs. Um, This week as it happened, um, I had a story on, um, Uh, James Thompson, who was the the first scientist to isolate and grow human embryonic stem cells. He's probably the most famous scientist at University of Wisconsin. And he's announced his retirement. Um, He's a famously difficult interview. I mean, he turns down a lot of like 99%, he says anyway, of the people who ask. Um, I had an interview with him and... You, you realize you know, how careful you have to be and um, how you sort of interrogate um, this, the, the facts in the story the same way that um, a scientist um, interrogates a theory or a finding. Um, one of the things that's very good about watching scientists is that they do something that goes completely against our nature. When they have a really good idea, to test that idea, they do everything they possibly can to knock it down. And as a reporter, that's a really difficult thing to do. Um, you know, it's it's. I can see how um, people are tempted to take liberties in stories to say, "Oh, I kind of saw that," or "I think I saw that," or, you know that detail would just, you know, it, it, it would be harmless and it'll paint a picture. You know, there are so many rationalizations you can come up with and nonfiction is brutal in that way. There's just, there's, there's the truth. Um, you know, I, I've, I've had, uh, debates with people about, um, science stories, um, because we're in an age where science is questioned a lot. And, People will say about things like uh, climate change, you know, well, there's, you know, two sides to this story. And my feeling is that there's a point at which a story becomes truth and they're not two sides of the truth. There's one truth. And we actually do harm when we try to present it as a either or he said, she said kind of thing with uh, fiction it's it's different because you've got this whole open kind of canvas and you can kind of write the rules any way you want but um, it, it one of the things that's that's often said in um, in journalism is that you've got to um, in the writing you have to know the rules before you break them and I think in fiction, that's kind of true too, that it may be very tempting to start off by writing a story entirely backwards, that goes backwards in time, you know, like um, Martin Amos's Time's Arrow. And it would be cool to try the sort of pyrotechnics of it. But you, I sort of realized when I sat down to do it, I'm going to be, this is going to be my first time doing this I shouldn't make it too much more complicated than it already is you know Um, I mean the structure of it was going to be challenging anyway just because it's essentially a short story collection that's uh, inside of a framed narrative and you have to be paying attention to sort of initially when I wrote it I think there was too little connection between the stories and the actual narrative of these people surviving climate change and trying to figure out how do we go on? You know, what, how do we live after this? Um, And I had to, I sort of put a lot more thought into making sure that the stories not only told something about the teller revealed something about them, but that, it also gave us some sort of um, insight into how people have been feeling as we've approached this uh, um, this sort of milestone, this awful um, thing that we've known is coming. Um, and there are a lot of basic things, basic feelings in human nature that come out of it. Uh, sometime, uh, something like that you know anger guilt um you know regret um sadness i i imagine in some ways there's also i mean in some points a, a feeling of brief elation the at the idea of you know i'm this survivor man i'm now i'm now reduced to actually fending for myself getting food without you know going down to the 7-eleven you know um that in and of itself i think for a lot of people for i would be one would be an enormous change i mean and you have to sort of i think imagine that there would be at least some small slight satisfaction in being able to do that even in really grim circumstances
0: Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh again, you are the first novelist to be on Gangry the podcast. Oh, it's a big honor. <laughs> the the book Though the Earth Gives Way is available now uh from from Bancroft Press. And uh I'm sure there'll be more fiction in the future.
1: Yep, I'm uh, I'm writing um I'm 100 pages into a novel called um Pete the Arsonist, which is completely different. <laughs> Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. Real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: I've been talking with Mark Johnson. Johnson is the author of the novel, Though the Earth Gives Way. He's also a Pulitzer-winning health and science reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. As usual, I've linked to a lot of Johnson's work. You can find that on the website. That's at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y the podcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at gangrypodcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry, that's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, podcast. Gangry the podcast is produced in the Integrated Media Labs at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the Digital Journalism and Sports Media programs, as well as the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield U. Thanks to Christina Cardona and Colleen Van for the new promo. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.